Open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And beginning with verse 5, we're going to look together at verses 5 through 18 as I read. And Lord willing, come back and revisit the latter half of verse 9, where we left off last week with the phrase, tasting death for every man. And begin into verse 10 today. But to help us just uh, really set the context of where we're at and and to help me with my introduction, we're going to back up to verse number 5, where we looked at verses 5 through 9 last time and read all the way through 18. Follow along as I read. The word of the Lord says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things are put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, or it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, or the nature of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or help them that are tempted. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. The more that I've looked at chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, the more I've come to appreciate how really it serves as a very significant portion of the entire book of Hebrews in this way. For those of you who have had the handout that I passed out, you'll notice that what I've seen in the book of Hebrews is that it is in many ways the introductory book or chapter, you could say, to the book of Hebrews 
that begins to introduce us to concepts and ideas that are really foundational to the Christian faith. Those are, as you see in your handouts, the identification and the arrival of the Messiah, and also the beginning or the inauguration of the new covenant. Remember that the, war, the original audience who this inspired writer is writing to, they were Hebrew Christians, and they would have long anticipated these promises being fulfilled. And right here in chapter 2, after spending much time in chapter 1, exalting the eternal Son, here in Hebrews chapter 2, what begins to come to the surface is some of these concepts of the new covenant beginning, of the Messiah coming into time, space, and history, taking upon himself the nature of Abraham, and even fleshing out some aspects of the work of the Messiah. That is, him being a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now, consider with me, as you see in your notes, how the very chapter itself is structured. And to prove this, consider it this way. What I'm saying here is, you have chapter 2 of Hebrews here, where we're at today. It's built upon chapter 1 that was really exalting the eternal sonship of the, uh, of the Son of God. Amen? And then you come to chapter 2, and it begins to take a shift of talking about this eternal Son coming into time, space, and history as a man. Now, this aspect and this understanding of the Messiah from chapter 2 here begins to, in a parallel way, run all throughout you were going to hear a loud squeak if I did that. It runs all the way throughout the book of Hebrews. But there's another concept that the preacher of Hebrews also does is he develops the reality of the new covenant and how it's superior, how it's begun, how it's perpetual. It will come to the it will it will keep going to the end of this age. And so consider with me just what we've seen so far, beginning with verse 5, how this begins to develop. It begins to come to the surface here. In chapter 2. Last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we saw that in verses 5 through 9, the author purposely brought our attention to the concepts of the covenant of works back in the Garden of Eden. That's why he imported into his message Psalms 110. He was forcing us as the church to look again at this whole idea of how God works with man. God intended for man to live with him in harmony. But man failed. God gave man a covenant which man was able to keep. But man chose to rebel. And therefore, it was going to need or require a Messiah. And we saw when we were looking at uh, the Proto-Evangelium, that's just a fancy way of saying the first pronouncement of the Gospel last week in Genesis 3.15, we noticed that there was a needed Messiah, right? To restore, to redeem, to correct. And so now you kind of see just beginning with verse number five, how coming to the surface are these ideas that are so fundamental to Christianity, right? They're not the entirety of the gospel, but without the promised Messiah being accomplished and realized, you don't have all the gospel, do you? Without the promise of a new covenant that through the Messiah will be accomplished for the redemption of people, you don't fully have the entire gospel, do you? You have many important parts of it. Oh, but the Messiah... The fulfilled promise, the covenant faithfulness of God that is instrumental to our understanding of a covenant-keeping God. Well, that's just in verses 5 through 9. But then the contours of chapter 2 further bring to the surface these important aspects 
of the Christian faith, the Messiah, who he is, what he does, the new covenant accomplished, inaugurated, and continuing. We're going to be getting a little bit into chapter 10 today. And we're going to be forced to consider the God of redemptive history, the God of covenants, the God of the covenant of works, the God of the new covenant. And we're going to have to consider his sovereignty and his work in bringing about redemption. This is what's going to come out in the first part of chapter uh, verse number 10 today. Well, this is instrumental in understanding key elements of the gospel and how someone's saved. So you see, these things are all coming to the surface of chapter 2 in Hebrews. He's beginning to bring them forth in his message, and then he's going to spend the rest of the message just really unpacking them and substantiating them. Verses 14 through 18. There is the new covenant, as you see in your notes, the new covenant reality of the Messiah being a high priest. Now, beloved, this is important. Let me just tell you why. Because the Hebrews who would have received this gospel have been taught all of their life that the Messiah is going to be a man from the line of David. He's going to be a king, a conquering king. But the high priest can only come from the tribe of Levi. And here in the fulfillment of the new covenant, in the person and the work of the Messiah, that's being brought to the surface here in chapter 2 and later expound throughout the rest of the book, the inspired writer is saying Christ fulfills all of those offices. The king, the high priest, and as a teacher and a proclaimer of truth, as we read in Matthew 7, a great, the greatest prophet. And so all of these are fundamental to understanding of the Christian faith, of who the Messiah is. And it's all beginning here in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. Isn't that exciting? It's, the, it's a map, you could say, of these two important truths that I put before you regarding the Messiah and the New Covenant. Well, how are we going to approach these sections, these remaining sections in chapter 2? How are we going to do that? Well, as you see there, we have to deal with what the Bible says in verse number 9, not skip over it, but line by line, verse by verse, book by book, we exposit the meaning of the text. And we're going to look at that phrase, tasted death for every man. Now, admittedly, this really kind of fits in the section of verses 5 through 9. And we ran out of time last week, but we got to pick up in verse number 9, accomplish that, and then we'll begin to move in in the verses 10 through 13 regarding uh, our union with Christ and God's wisdom of how he brings about salvation. So I propose we do that. And then we look at verse number 10 under three considerations. Obviously, we're not going to get through all three of them today, but we'll at least get to the first one, considering God of the covenants and his sovereignty and his wisdom. And so that's what we're going to operate under today. We're going to consider how he tasted death for every man. And then we're going to go into the first half of verse number 10, demonstrating or looking at in this new covenant scheme, in this Revelation of how God is going to save man, we're going to see a glimpse of the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. Well, let's look at verse number 9 together to get it wrapped up. You remember in verse number 9, starting off, there was a contrast with that conjunction word, but. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with honor and glory, that he, by the grace of God, or you could say by a demonstration of the grace of God, that he should taste death for every man. Now the thrust of verse number 9 was showing a contrast of what the original man couldn't do in verses 5 through 8. 
And then we see in verse number 9 that Jesus came by the grace of God, was given His only begotten Son by the grace of God in order to restore the original position that man was intended to have. And so this is why Paul identifies Jesus as the second Adam, as to where the first Adam, which we are all descendants of, failed to do what he was supposed to do. So that was the the real main thrust of that section between verses 5 through 9. But then you got that little phrase at the end. How was Jesus to do this? What was part of his method of doing this? By the grace of God, he would taste death for every man. Now, in a very simple biblicism, Sarah, we could look at that and we could say the Bible says that Jesus died, tasted death for every man. Beloved, while it is important to know what the Bible says, it's also very important to know what the Bible means. Sometimes people can say what the Bible says, but they really haven't grasped or studied out what, when it's saying what it says, what it really means. We were a prime example of this. Didn't plan on sharing this, but it's a prime example that's come to mind. Uh, some of the brethren in the church went to the uh, conference of Christ Alone down in Kentucky a few weeks ago, or at least it seems like a few weeks ago when you get my age. And... Um, While we were there, one of the pastors did more of a historical theological talk on a man named Thomas Collier, who was very influential amongst the particular Baptists. Thomas Collier was a very gifted man. He knew what the Bible said. He was like a walking Bible encyclopedia. Have you ever met guys like that? I wish I had that gift of being able to memorize scripture like that, you know, and and, and using it in that way. So Thomas Collier was this guy. He wrote 37 books was asked to produce a confession for the western part of England, the particular Baptist associations there. He was asked to write a catechism. Uh, he was asked to come and fill pulpits. You know, one of those kind of guys. He would be the guy who was speaking at the G3 conference nowadays, you could say, right? So Thomas Collier's there. But what Thomas Collier did was while he would say what the Bible said, he held uh, very dangerous views of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the Trinity, i.e. also, by implication, the doctrine of Christ. And so when he would write things, he would purposefully hide, not fully reveal, what he understood the Bible to mean. He would just say, God is one. And we would all be like, Amen. Yeah, it does. And he'd give a bunch of Bible verses. But he would never describe the Trinity. He would never describe the offices of Christ, the deity of Christ, so forth and so on. And so the whole point of it was, is that while Thomas Collier recited a bunch of Bible verses, he obviously didn't have a true Christian Orthodox meaning of what those Bible verses meant. And he was allowed for some times to have too much influence amongst the particular Baptists. And then it took seven men from London who were pastors to say, enough's enough, we have to expose his errors and cause you know, some controversy. Well, with all of that said, we come down here to verse number nine. What does it mean when the inspired writer here in chapter 2 says that Jesus tasted death for every man. Well, we looked at last time what tasted death meant, and it wasn't like he was sampling death. It wasn't like at uh, Sam's Club. Do you guys miss Sam's Club? Sam's Club, where you got the free things at the end of the aisle, and you could sample the food, you could taste the food before you bought it. That's not what the Bible is referring to here. It was the death of death, says Owen explains it. It was the full extent of everything that death could offer is what Jesus paid and what's being referred here in verse number 9. But it says He did it for every man. And so this raises the question for us 
to not want to avoid it and jump, jump around it because it could be controversial to try to say who Jesus died for. It raises the question for us, did Jesus truly die for every man, as the Bible clearly, plainly on the surface says, or only for those who would come to repentance and belief upon him? That's the question that we want to work with now. Now, the answer to this question is of no little significance. Don't think that we can just agree to disagree and it really has no impact on us as Christians or the church or the gospel or the proclamation of the gospel. Particularly because of what's further going to be conveyed in the rest of this chapter relating to the union between Christ and His people. Okay? So what we come up with, the answer here, of what I'm proposing to you, is very important to build upon what the writer of Hebrews is going to establish later on about being one with Christ. About persevering in the faith. About being reassured that Christ uh, will not leave you, forsake you, that his blood was sufficient, etc., etc. All right? While this is, I admit, the topic itself, who did Christ die for? A very far-reaching doctrine, a very far-reaching topic. All Christians can and they ought to study out all of the witnesses of Scripture in order to be settled in their mind to the answer to this question. But for our purposes today, I want us to stay right here in Hebrews. Because I think the book of Hebrews offers everything we need, especially in the immediate context of chapter 2, to give us the answer. In other words, while this is a, a big doctrine, it's a big topic, and we can go all through the Bible, and in your own personal time, you ought to use all the witnesses of Scripture to come to your answer. We can do it really quite simply today for our purposes here in the book of Hebrews. And if we can as I'm claiming we can in the book of Hebrews, come to a sufficient answer to answer this question. And if we're correct in our interpretation, then we know that our answer will be in complete harmony and and agreement, not in contradiction to the other places of Scripture where the same question could be raised. Now, after thinking about how to handle this question in chapter 2 of our text today, it come to me, that many theologians, if I have studied this and have read about it in the past, they believe that there's two most important fundamental questions to help us approach the answer. And I've given to your notes. And this is the two headings we're going to operate under. The first one is, what was God's intention with the death of Jesus? Before we can just quickly answer who he died for, what was his purpose or his intent, Sister, Hera, uh, Sister Heather? for the death of Jesus to begin with. And the second one is, to what extent is God's intention realized? What is it fulfilled or accomplished? To what extent, once we nail down his intentions for the death of Jesus, how is it accomplished? To what extent is it accomplished? Or is it even accomplished at all? Or is it just a hypothetical thing? All right? So if we answer these two things, it's going to help us move forward into a more solid grounding To answer the question, who it is Jesus died for? By answering these two questions, we can be reassured that we correctly understand the Bible's meaning regarding who Jesus tasted death for. So let's pick up then the first one. God's intention, His purpose relating to the death of Jesus. Well, as you see in your notes, first of all, we clearly see from the context of the book of Hebrews that one of the purposes or one of the intentions of God 
was because redemption was required. Redemption was needed. Something had happened. We've clearly saw that in verses 5 through 9 in the covenant of works, or as our Baptist catechism says, the covenant of life. Where in the garden our first parents sinned against God, they were judged with a curse, and he casted them out of the garden. They were separated from God. So something happened there, right? There was sin that happened. There was a separation between man and God. Man man was no longer innocent. He was no longer acceptable in the presence of God. And then the context that's imported from Psalms 110, it painted a picture for us, if you remember uh, here in Hebrews 2, that man's original purpose for rule and dominion under the harmonious relationship or communion that he shared with his creator was lost forever. By doing this, the writer of Hebrews was introducing into this message of Hebrews leading up to where we're at right now in verse number 9, saying Jesus tasted death for every man. The concept of law he introduced by taking our attention back to the garden, the concept of judgment, the concept of penalty, the concept of cursing. And in just in case we miss that concept from looking at Psalms 110 as he uh, used it in verses 5 through 8, later in the epistle to the Hebrews, he reiterates this idea of judgment, penal, uh, penal uh, payment required, all throughout the book of Hebrews. He does it just in our verse uh, 17 here, where he says there was reconciliation. Well, why is there reconciliation needed? Because there's those concepts behind that whole idea of redemption and reconciliation, of judgment, of cursing, things needing to be made right through a mediator. He does it in chapter 9. He does it in chapter 7. And so this concept of redemption needed is all throughout the book of Hebrews. And so it's given us, as we understand, some idea or understanding of what was God's intention and purpose of the death of Jesus. It has to be connected in some way with judgment, penalty, and cursing that man incurred upon himself for his sins. Thus, regarding God's intention of Jesus tasting death, our understanding of it can't possibly be separated from this concept or being connected to it and furthermore required by God for the appeasing, or as the Bible language used, it's a legal term, the propitiation, big word, just means legally satisfying God's wrath against rebellious sinners. That's important. Because when we hold up that truth of the purpose or intention of the death of Jesus, we are at the very same time honoring the attribute of God in His holy righteousness and justice. We can't divorce the intention and the purpose of Christ's death from those concepts because then we're not given due honor to how God reveals Himself in the Bible, particularly as we considered last week in the garden. He's a holy, righteous God. He has to judge sin. He has to get it out of his presence. But secondly, what we learned in verses 5-9, through seeking to try to understand the intention and purpose of the death of Jesus on God's part, that there was a sacrifice required. There was sacrifice. Redemption was needed. Something had happened. Man was lost forever. But how was it going to happen? It had to happen through a sacrifice. God's intention required the death of Jesus we saw in connection with judgment and penalty against sinners. And it was undeniable 
last week in verses 5 through 9, of explaining why it was necessary for the eternal Son, described in verse number 1, to, look at your Bibles in verse number 17 today, it was required for that eternal Son to be made, or you could say incarnated, like unto his brethren, meaning man, in order, the scripture says in verse number 17, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. And likewise, this concept of reconciliation or its sister concept, redemption, we see is the driving intention. It's the driving purpose of why God purposed Jesus to die. Reconciliation and redemption connected with penal legal substitution, connected with judgment, connected with cursing, All of that's mixed in to our understanding, biblically speaking from the witness of Scripture, to why God intended and purposed Jesus to die. With these two considerations now in our understanding, we can responsibly conclude that according to the inspired writer of Hebrews, the intention and the purpose of God regarding or connected with the death of Jesus was that Jesus would take upon himself the penalty the sinner deserved in order to propitiate or to legally satisfy, to legally appease the wrath of God against that sinner, and thereby God as holy and the sinner as unclean, as guilty, could be brought together. By the death of Jesus, sinners would be atoned for, we see in verses 5-9. through And thus they would be made right with God. They would be forgiven. Just like the animal sacrifices were offered in order to take the punishment for the sinner in his stead when he brought it forth every year in the Old Covenant, we clearly understand here that one of the purposes, one of the intentions of God for the death of Jesus was in a very similar way, but be careful, it was in a much more different and powerful way. Jesus, like the animal, taking the punishment for the purpose, the rebellious sinner who actually deserved it. That was connected to as part of the intention and the purpose of the death of Jesus according to the divine plan of God. In other words, his death, the intention and purpose of his death by God was to atone for the sins of guilty sinners so that they would not have a given atonement for themselves. This is why, look at your notes there, Paul can say, Understanding this concept of the intention and the purpose of the death of Jesus, he can say and connect it with this idea of atonement in Romans 5.11, where he says, We also join God that through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. In other words, the sacrificed animal ceremonies they were pointing to, and this was part of the gospel, ultimately to their fulfillment in the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God's clear intention regarding the death of Jesus was to satisfy His wrath against the sinner for the violation of His law as their holy creator. And for clarity's sake, Christ is understood to have endured the exact punishment or the exact worth, the extent of the punishment that the sinner truly deserved. The writer of Hebrews can't teach this more simply more clearly than he has already done in chapter 1, verse 3, 
as he's doing now in chapter 2, and as he will do as he goes on to expound about the work, the priestly work of the Messiah. Jesus took upon him every individual's sinner's punishment that they deserved in its fullest. This is somewhat understood. I didn't plan on going this direction, but it's helpful here as we just alluded to the old covenant by which, you know, a man would come and for his individual family, he would come and he would bring a sacrifice. He wasn't uh, bringing the sacrifice for his neighbors and for everybody else. It was very specific. It was just for his family in that covenant arrangement. That's what he was required to do. And so I say all that to say that it would be mistaken notion that Jesus died... um, upon the cross and took the punishment for a random or collective unnamed or unknown people, right? That's what I'm getting at there when I'm stressing the point that he actually took upon himself real punishment that specific individuals truly deserved. Now those who deny this truth that I just expressed, that the intention and the purpose of the death of Christ on God's side was to receive and take upon himself and endure the wrath and the punishment that individual rebellious sinners deserved. This truth is known in the church as penal. You get the idea of penal, legal, guilt, substitutionary, Christ in the place of sinners, death of Christ, the penal substitutionary death of Christ. Those who deny that truth of everything I just kind of laid out there would fall into the error of denying some of the core tenets of the Christian gospel. Now that's a big statement, what I just said. Because understand, there are a lot of people who have churches that deny the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to bore you with all of the ideas that are out there. The most prominent one if you wanted to look it up in your own studies, is called the government theory. The government theory. Where Jesus really wasn't penalized by the Father, but the cross was just a demonstration for us to look at, and his sufferings were to be an example of the grossness and the harshness of sin and how it displeases God. And therefore, therefore as the sinner looks upon it, his conscience is pricked of how awful this is and how much God hates it and he would repel from sin and he would want to receive the gift of life and the the gift of newness of life, the blessings that Christ can offer to help him stay away from that. That's called the government theory. Many of you have probably heard of a famous revivalist by the name of Charles Finney. He held to that theory. Jonathan Edwards, many of you know him. Very eminent man in American history and the Christian church, Protestantism particularly. His son, Jonathan Edwards the Younger held to that theory. It's debatable whether John, Jonathan Edwards held to it. I'm not a, a scholar of Jonathan Edwards. I don't know that. Uh, but there's many people, particularly in classic Methodism, it's popular in the Church of the Nazarene, who hold to this view of government theory. Another one is moral theory. You can look that up. Satisfaction theory. But all of them have this one common thread. Jesus did not take upon him actual wrath and punishment that individual sinners deserved. And thus they deny what I believe is one of the fundamental aspects of the gospel. Now, 
That's the intention and purpose of the death of Christ. To take the place of ill-deserving, hell-bound sinners. His blood was spilt. The agony, the death that He tasted was what they deserved. And now through Christ and that work upon the cross, God's wrath, His justice can be appeased. It can be propitiated. It can be legally satisfied. And these guilty, ill-deserving sinners can come as sons now and be accepted. They can approach this holy throne of a just God through the blood of Christ. That being God's intention of what He wants to accomplish through the death of Christ, let us now consider in our second heading here under this question, to what extent is that intention and that purpose accomplished? Was it ever accomplished? Did it really happen? And and, and to whom? Well, I think the first you see in your notes there thing we have to consider is that, yes, a real transaction, a real penal substitutionary transaction took place, beloved, at the cross. Christ did die for you today. Here, if you repent and you believe upon his gospel and you daily come to feed upon that ever-flowing fount of forgiveness at the cross, know and be assured that, yes, God's intention and purpose through the death of Christ to pay for your sins, it was accomplished. A real transaction, as you see in your notes, took place. Did Jesus' death actually atone for an individual's sin? Did it truly reconcile hell-deserving sinners back to God individually? Well, I hope you would agree as we read the text this morning from Hebrews 2, For us to rightly understand verse 9 and what the intention of what this author meant, let us take heed that I believed he thought it did accomplish that. Uh, We we see that all throughout chapter 2. Verse number 10, Jesus is called, for instance, the captain, the author, the founder of, look at the pronoun, their salvation. These individuals, he, she, joined together in a plural pronoun, their salvation. So whatever you want to make of the answer, the inspired writer of Hebrew, he definitely was under the impression by the Spirit of God that it was accomplished, that a transaction did take place, that God's intention and purpose of the death of Jesus was realized. Right? Wasn't something that was going to happen in the future. Wasn't something that made it possible or a chance. He's writing as though this has taken place. And Jesus was the captain of their salvation. In other words, the individual fallen, sinful sons of Adam, who in verse 13 are described as those who God has given unto Jesus, they are truly blessed with actual forgiveness and penal atonement. Jesus truly and completely took the penalty of these sinners that they deserved. And thus is why he can rightly be identified as the captain of their individual, their particular salvations. This truth of actual redemption taking place, not a possibility, not a hypothetical. This truth is reiterated throughout the epistle, not just this one example. Consider as you see in your notes under this heading, from Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. And again, I'm just trying to establish this case from the book of Hebrews. I'm in by no ways uh, running away from that historic Protestant hermeneutic of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Like I said, I just want to keep us kind of anchored here because if you let me loose all throughout the Bible, we'll never get through this, right? So let's just stay here in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. 
This is again reiterated that the author understood that this was accomplished. Christ appearing, it says, as a high priest of good things to come by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place. Listen to this definite article of something being realized and accomplished. Having obtained, what? Eternal, there's that word, redemption. Redemption for us. The word redemption, the word reconciliation, it carries with it all those concepts of the intention and the purpose of God requiring a death of His only begotten Son. And so it's all throughout the message of the book of Hebrews. So I hope you would agree with me that it is undeniable that God's intention was truly accomplished, at least in the mind of this inspired writer. The victorious captain of man's needed salvation actually did secure redemption for sinners, didn't he? He actually secured atonement. He didn't secure only a possibility of redemption, a mere chance of reconciliation, the death of Jesus, the one that he tasted as taught by the inspired writer here, was a death that fully satisfied the holy attribute of God's justice. And God, we know from the book of Hebrews, He accepted it. As the righteous holy judge, He entirely accepted, He was appeased, He was satisfied with the substitutionary death of His Son. We know that because the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 12, this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so we get the picture here of Jesus setting down after he offered his substitutionary death once and for all, it was accomplished. God's intended purpose, God's intention was satisfied. The death of Jesus did what God wanted to do, what he designed it to do, and it was done. But... If Jesus actually accomplished redemption, if by his death he actually atoned for sins, if he, beloved, was so successful in fulfilling the intentions and the purpose of his Father, and was to the extent so successful that he could sit down at the right hand of the Father, as we've considered before in previous messages, to whom are the recipients of this great accomplished redemption? Is it every single man? Is it every single person? The recipients, as you see in your handout, the Bible teaches us are particular. The recipients of this accomplished atonement of Jesus for sinners is limited. It's not universal. Not every man, as our text says today, has been reconciled unto God, as the Bible plainly teaches, has been atoned for by Christ, has had the wrath of God against their rebellious sins forgiven and appeased. This is perhaps more directly related to the question that we've been considering, isn't it? Who are the recipients of the atonement? What extent of the human race did this actual atonement and redemption apply to? We could ask it that way. Or very simply, and most commonly how it's asked is, for whom did Jesus die? Well, again, let's allow chapter 2 
and our immediate context here where we find this phrase in verse number 9 to have the first voice before we go anywhere else. We know that those who received this death of Jesus mentioned in verse 9, who Jesus tasted death for, are described in verse 11. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. They're described as what? Sanctified and are made as one with Jesus and are called his brethren. Now when we get to this, I'm not going to do it now, but this is, called, this is speaking of such a close solidarity, um, a union in a mystical way to where we are one actually with Jesus Christ. So whoever he tasted death for, that can be a description of them. Just look at verse number 12. They are the church. That is a distinct and a separated, called out community of people from a larger general society of people. And this is just what the church means in the New Testament. A called out group of people in Ecclesia. Look at verse 13, guys. They are particular individuals who are called children who God gave to Jesus. So those who Jesus tasted death for are considered Jesus' children. Um, we're looking at Mr. Hamaker right now holding his little child. Um, he would not allow with all fiber and strength in his body to let any man or intruder rip that child from him. That is his child. He loves that child. That child, in many ways, it's, it's interesting you can think about this, and, and, and don't take this illustration too far, don't take this parallel too far, but allow me a little wiggle room here. Uh, that child is one with him. It is part of him. It's part of him and part of his wife, right? But there's that intimate connection. So who Jesus takes death for? Well, his children. And that was just a word picture to help you see the closeness, the oneness that these children are to Jesus. And we know that's the case because of what they're, how they're further described in verses 14 and 15. There are those who have been delivered from the power of death And verse 17, those who have been indeed, it says, reconciled. So it's been accomplished for them. And those who Jesus is now, in the word picture I just used with Mr. Hamaker, are uh, being faithfully ministered to, mercifully ministered to by their high priest, Jesus Christ. To continue the word picture, when Mr. Hamaker's children get hurt, he doesn't say, hey, just tough it up and, you know, you're bleeding, you've got to cut, you know, and just ignore it. No, what's he do? He tends to them, doesn't he? He cares for them. He ministers to them. A lot of us dads, what do we say? Your, your mom has the, the first aid kit and, and we tell them to send them to mom. But you get the point there. All of this, just in the immediate context, beloved, is a clear portrait of the church of Jesus Christ. Those who through God-granted faith have laid hold upon the gospel which Jesus preached Himself in Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Those are the ones who He sees as His children. Those are the ones who His redemption has been accomplished on their behalf. They are the ones who He has particularly accomplished the atonement for. Thus, at least here, at this point in chapter 2, those for whom Jesus died cannot be correctly understood as every single human person. I hope you would agree with me. Because not every single person can properly be described in the terms that chapter 2 just set forth. The phrase in verse number 9 
cannot mean that Jesus died for every person. But as you see in your notes, it must rightly mean, when we see what the Bible says here, and this is true elsewhere in the Bible, beloved, it must rightly mean that Jesus died for only believers without any distinction of being a Jew or a Gentile. Or to put it another way, He died for every kind of man who are among the sons of glory. Now, immediately you're going to be charged. Well, you just changed what it said. No, I didn't change what it said. I just explained to you what it meant. I'd explain to you what it meant. And honestly, that interpretation isn't far out there either in the immediate context because consider, there are many things that I told you on the board that are being introduced to these Hebrew Christians that were all together new. That the Messiah was going to be holding three offices, not just one of the king. Well, that's a new concept. The kingdom of the Messiah was going to include Jews and Gentiles, not just the ancient Israelites. And so it would be totally appropriate for any gospel minister speaking to a society or a group of those who were in Judaism, reared up in Judaism, etc., etc., when they're understanding the fulfillment of the Messiah and the new covenant, that is the gospel, that it's reiterated to them that He is the Messiah for every man, every kind of man, not just you Jews. And so how you see, I hope you would agree that that is a faithful interpretation if one decides to turn this truth that I've just laid out on its head and conclude that Jesus in fact did die for every single person and that all will go to heaven because he accomplished reconciliation and reconciliation and redemption comes with all that other stuff that a person gets that view is known as many of you already know as universalism those who believe that But that view, as I said earlier, doesn't account for the biblical evidence that demands we reverence the attribute of God's justice. God's justice. If one wishes to go another route and conclude that Jesus, while, yes, having died a death for all men, he actually atoned for the sins of all men, and therefore his atonement, his death, It's unlimited in its sufficiency or in its adequacy for all men. While they will acknowledge that, well, he he died for all men, but it's only particularly applied when a person appropriates it to himself. If someone wants to take that route, well, such an account, I believe, would deny the biblical evidence that demands we honor the attribute of God's love. What do you mean? How does that that deny that? Because, beloved, with the idea of Christ dying specifically for those who Jesus gave him, you need to take a step back and you need to remember what we learned in verses 5 through 8, that we all deserve damnation. We all have sinned. We inherited sin from Adam. We have willingly sinned. And we love that darkness. God didn't need to save one person. And so to fully grasp this concept and this idea of the atonement and the preciousness of particular or limited atonement, get that view of the mass and the sea of humanity, all deserving no goodness. Me and the brethren were talking before the church service started. 
And we were talking about this aspect about really, if you think about it, we don't deserve one ounce of comfortability in this life. We don't deserve a good, clean glass of water. We don't deserve this beautiful sunshine that many of us enjoyed coming into church today. In view of verses 5 through 8, how could in the world Jesus taste death for any of us? Oh, but He did. For those who the Father gave Him, He come, He was made, verse 17 tells us, as a man in time, space, and history to take their specific penalty and punish it that they deserved. That they deserved. And to say then therefore that He just arbitrarily died for the whole world. And then that a man can uh, kind of pick up and pick a piece of fruit if he sows desires and apply it to himself. I hope you see that it takes away a little bit of the preciousness, the gloriousness of this eternal love that the Father had for those who He calls His children. It takes away from many other aspects that we hold dear to the tenets of the gospel. But listen how, given it to your notes, Dr. Robert Paul Martin comes at it in commenting in this verse. He says, in this context, referring to our question here, the phrase, uh, for every man, he says, in this context, we may not extrapolate from the writer's language to speak of all men without exception, as is sometimes done. We've accomplished that. Unless, he continues to say, unless, of course, we are prepared to import into the text the absent idea of what's commonly, I don't think it's a helpful phrase, but it's commonly referred to as the free offer of the gospel, which simply means, as you see your notes, that the result of the Son's death for all or for every man is made to depend upon the decision of the man to appropriate it to himself. God's love for His church. Oh, the cord is much more secure and strong than that. Then depend on man's autonomous, free decision to accept it. He loves His church and He's going to make sure that His intended purpose that Christ truly accomplished is brought to bless His church. As I said before, the answer to this question as we transition and we move away and we're going to have to conclude here. <laughs> so here, here's our applicatory thought. Uh, we do not have time to get into verse number 10. And you know what? That's okay, isn't it? The answer to this question, who did Jesus taste death for, must be settled in our minds, beloved, because when it is not, we will in many ways forfeit the blessed truths and new covenant realities that then begin, as I said at the introduction of the message, begin to be developed in the book of Hebrews, which are all intended to aid and to help the assurance of these Christians to persevere in the faith. If Christ didn't actually take your place upon the cross and endure that wrath, well, then there's some element that you still have to pay, isn't there? And if your endurance, your perseverance depends on that, any iota, let me just tell you what you already know according to your own conscience, you're going to fall way short. Right? And if Jesus just paid a general, uh, adequate atonement upon the cross for all the wor world, 
And it only is made special. It's only applied effectually by a man's arbitrary decision, whether he wants it or not, or reject it if he may. Oh, I hope you see that that cuts short the exact love of God that he has for his church. He will make sure that the accomplishment of Christ's payment on the cross is applied to us, will continually be applied to us. And this is what the writer is nailing down here in verse 9. We'll reiterate throughout the book, book entirely so that they can be constantly secure and know that they're standing before God rest. This is a common theme so far in Hebrews on Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else will help us persevere in the faith than that. Constantly looking to Christ and Christ alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, we do, Lord, thank you for giving us your word that truly interprets itself. We thank you, Lord, as we were wanting to sincerely know the truth of the question here today, for whom did the Savior, the Redeemer, the great mediator between you as a thrice holy God and guilty sinful man, whom did he die for? And Lord, in your blessed kindness, we didn't have to go very far actually today. Uh, the Bible answers this question, the immediate context of, he- of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews and even chapter 2 answered the question for us. It is those who could be described as your children. And Lord, we thank you that it is a reflection of your unique And as we will learn as we go through this book, your eternal and purposeful love for all of those who, when you send the Spirit forth to prick their heart, Lord, they repent and they believe upon the good news of the gospel of you loving them through Christ, although they illy deserve it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to further study this truth out as it adds further a catalyst strength to the foundation of our Christian faith. Because no doubt, as we read in Matthew chapter 7 this morning, the storms will come upon our house, our house of faith, that is. And if we have sand under us, Lord, and we don't have a settled mind and understanding of some of these biblical truths, our foundations can be washed away. Help us, Lord, I pray, by thy blessed spirit to always be attentive to the truth of Christ and Christ alone. We worship you, Christ. We bless you and we thank you as we will get into more next week, just what it really truly costed you to come and to pay the price that none of us could pay. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.